0: The History of Literature Podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lithub Radio.
1: And spooky, we're strapping on our helmets and setting sail on our longboats. Our mission? To reach some new territory and plunder it for all it's worth. But our target today is not some unsuspecting village, but the Viking poem known as the Voluspa. We're going to meet a guide who will show us the way, and we'll attack this little poem, show it we mean business and bring home whatever loot we can store in our minds. Viking Poetry, today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the show, Viking Poetry. What a great topic for an episode. We're going to be joined by Noah Tetzner today, host of the wonderful History of Vikings podcast. We'll hear all about the great poem, the Völuspá, one of the foundational poems in Nordic culture. The Veluspa sets out the mythology of the Vikings, from the creation of the universe to the prophecy of Ragnarok, or the twilight of the gods, period, So interesting and so much fun. But first, I wanted to thank everyone for wishing me a happy 150 episodes. The History of Literature podcast just keeps chugging along. 150 episodes. That's quite a few. And for all of you who keep asking, who want to know just how exactly I'm dealing with all of the success that the podcast has brought me, I have to say, well, Here's where I would say something modest, like I'm still the same old Jack and that kind of thing. But the one expression that comes to mind is one that I've always had trouble using, and I'll tell you why. What I should say here is I'm the same old Jack. I put my pants on one leg at a time, just like everyone else. But that would be a lie. I haven't put my pants on one leg at a time for years. And in fact somewhat surprised to hear that other people still do. I was probably in my early 20s when I really started evaluating my life. I wanted to be efficient. I had so many things I wanted to get done. And there wasn't going to be enough time to do them all. So I scrutinized my daily activities very carefully. I cut my sleep down to three or four hours per night. That was a big one. After I figured out how to save the hours, I started looking for ways to save minutes and even for ways to save seconds. Putting your pants on one leg at a time takes several extra seconds. Let's say it's 10. It's a rough estimate. 10 seconds to put that second leg on. I wear pants or shorts probably 20 days a month at least. That's 200 seconds a month. If you count pajamas, it doubles. 400 seconds a month times 12 months in a year times 50 years. You see where this is going. It's like finding an extra day or two. An extra day or two of life. So, I taught myself to put my pants on two legs at a time. First, I positioned them very carefully on the floor, stepped into them and pulled them up, but of course the positioning took a lot of time. There wasn't much savings there, so I trained myself to hold my pants with both hands, jump up, and land with my legs all the way through. It's not for everyone. I'm good, but nobody's perfect, and I'd say I probably break my nose on the floor maybe once a year on average. But even so, that's my preferred method. On those days when I'm forced by societal obligations to wear pants, I will be glad to have those extra days back at the end of my life. The more extra days I can tack on, the better. So, if you've been wondering how I've been dealing with success, let me just tell you, I'm still jumping into my pants and occasionally breaking my nose on the floor,
0: as always.
1: The Vikings knew what it was like to take risks, and they knew what it was like to be ruthlessly efficient. Their poetry falls into that category. It's concise and vivid and well worth reading, though it helps to have someone explaining the history, explaining the context, and explaining the subject matter. Noah Tetzner will supply all that for us. After this.
0: Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat Cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Follow the Cat in the Hatcast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hatcast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me
1: now is Noah Tetzner, who's here to talk about the Old Norse poem known as the Völuspá. Noah is an expert in Viking culture and mythology, and he's currently the host of the History of Vikings podcast, Noah Tetzner, welcome to the History of Literature.
2: Thank you so much, Jack. It's a, it's a great pleasure to be here. I uh, love what you've done with the show and, and just how you uh, have brought literature to life for, for so many people. So it's, it's really a, a pleasure to uh, get to have a conversation with you this evening.
1: Oh, thank you. So my first question is, did I pronounce the title of the poem correctly?
2: Yeah, that's right, the Voluspa. The
1: Voluspa okay so before we get to the Voluspa, let's start with you and I'm interested in your interest in Vikings in the Vikings and when did that begin
2: well I've always been uh, super fascinated with history but I would say that my uh, interest in the Vikings is uh, more of a a recent um, more of a recent thing and uh, i it was just um, I've always loved different mythologies and uh, just the great stories that you can see in in the myths of, mm. of different Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I sort of discovered Norse myth and I discovered the primary sources, the you know, the poetic Edda, which I'm sure we'll get into today, and yeah. prose Edda and uh the saga of the Volsungs and you know, that was just super mind blowing for me. Uh just discovering these great works of literature which uh really are sort of uh, shadowed Greek mythology is mm. super popular, and that's kind of dominated the pop culture in that regard for decades, I'd say. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, and, and then it was just, of course, taking an interest in the people behind the myths, the people who worshipped these gods and um, composed these stories and these oral traditions, you know, the Vikings. So I would say that my interest in the Vikings really stems from from studying the the Norse myths.
1: Yeah. Would you say we're going through kind of a Vikings moment? I mean, we have the, the Marvel movies that puts all of Thor and, and Loki into all of our minds. And there's the the popular show on the History Channel. And uh, have you seen sort of a an uptick in interest in the
2: Vikings? Yeah, I would say there's definitely an uptick in, in interest. And uh, I don't really know if that's a, a fad or if it's kind of a long-lasting interest that's here mm. to stay you yeah. know because you look at sort of like other eras of history like world war ii the american civil war those are things which will always be popular just because there's so much like there's just a massive amount of content and material we have so much um we have so many sources and so many different uh areas to explore so i'm curious if if that will happen with the vikings as, as time goes on but yeah with um like you said, the Vikings TV show, uh, the Marvel movies, um, Neil Gaiman's new best-selling book, Mm. Norse G. There's just really, a lot of people are um, taking a big interest in uh, Vikings and Norse history, which is really exciting to see.
1: Right. And what led you to start the History of Vikings podcast?
2: Well, I've always been a uh, big fan of podcasts in general, and uh, especially history podcasts. And while there were a few Viking podcasts out there already, the format of my show is I always every episode uh, feature a Viking or Norse mythology uh, related you know expert guest, and it's a discussion based show. Mm-hmm. And not too mm-hmm. many history podcasts were doing that, and still not many are doing that. So I just wanted to give a lot of these scholars a platform, and I know they were very knowledgeable. And after talking with them, I've learned so much myself. And a lot of them are authors of some of my favorite history books. So it's really been a um, a huge opportunity and just a joy to get to have conversations with a lot of my uh, like history heroes, essentially.
1: Right. Well, I think the show is great, and I encourage everyone to go find it, uh, but maybe after they listen to this one. <laughs> uh, that's the History of Vikings podcast. Okay, so who exactly were the Vikings? I know we have a lot of uh i mean i i I go all the way back to Hagar the horrible and we have the the horned helmets and a lot of it is has seeped into our kind of popular culture popular understanding but I sometimes wonder if I really have a good sense of you know i'm I'm picturing. Uh, men with beards and they're rowing and they're long ships and they're going to plunder villages. And apart from that, there's not a whole lot that I really feel uh, confident about. And maybe I shouldn't even be confident about that. So who were they?
2: Well, I think there's a big misconception about the the word Viking, because uh, actually, if we look at the, the word, the name Viking, it's kind of a job description in that the root word uh, of the Old Norse, Vic, combined with the rest of the word, the I-N-G. Basically, what the word means in Old Norse is um, sort of like a pirate who lurks in a small cove or fjord. So it's very much an activity. And um, mm. to go a Viking, you go raiding. And uh, when talking about the Vikings, uh, generally what people mean is the uh, – Norse people of the Middle Ages, the Norse men and women who lived in Scandinavia, uh, during the Middle Ages. And I guess if you sort of going along with that definition of the word, not all Norse people were Vikings and not all, uh, I guess Vikings were Vikings as, as Mm. you know, it is kind of a job description. But I think, you know, clearly the, um, a lot of Norse people went off raiding and pillaging and, uh, you know, sacking monasteries and and coastal villages. Uh, But I think that that is sort of an over-dramatized aspect of of Norse history in that um, oftentimes we tend to depict the Vikings as being exceptionally violent. Uh, You know, they were Mm -hmm. murderous people all the time. Uh, But if you look at the Middle Ages in retrospect, it was really uh, just an unbelievably violent time, you know, especially with – Charlemagne, uh, converting, you know, trying to force people to convert to Christianity and, uh, just everything that was going on in the middle ages, the crusades, um, the list goes on and on. So I don't think the Vikings were exceptionally violent. And while many Vikings did go off raiding and pillaging uh a lot of them were just as concerned with putting food on the table and uh, living agricultural lifestyles as was so common during the time running their farmsteads and uh the nobles their estates and uh etc but i think that they would have been able to live a life that encompassed both existences so perhaps they would have gone off raiding during the raiding season and uh they also would have um you know, looked after their families and their farms and and that sort of thing.
1: So was the raiding a just a a means of of subsistence? Was it sort of like foraging might be where you go out and and come back or hunting might be where you go out and you come back with, you know, food and treasure? Or was it uh, for feuds and territory and some of the other things we might associate with warfare?
2: Right. No, I definitely think it was the uh, first thing that you mentioned. Uh, The Vikings had a massive trading network established. Um, Mm. It's one thing that a lot of people don't really think about when they when talking about Vikings is they were actually remarkable traders. Um, We've actually found a Buddha statue in Sweden, and it just goes as well as uh, Byzantium silk in England, uh, in the Viking city of York. So just goes to show you they had, you know. Uh, their trading networks stretched all over the globe, you know, to the Middle East and the wealthiest parts of the world at the time. The places that they would raid and that they sacked um, were obviously on their trade routes. So they knew these places existed, and it's not just like they all decided to get in their longboats one day and, oh, look, a monastery. No, they were very much planned raids um, and the Vikings were very intelligent people, as well. A lot of people kind of tend to perceive them as being kind of stupid, but right. they brutish, yeah, brutish. that's a good word, but they they really were quite intelligent, um and especially we can see that in just the myths that they mm. um, told and and that sort of thing
1: right. Well, that was my next question is how did poetry fit into their lives?
2: Yeah, poetry had a very special place in Viking everyday life. There's different forms of poetry uh, during the Viking Age. So there's different forms of uh, Old Norse poetry, Old mm-hmm. Norse language of the Vikings. And the two main forms are uh, what is known as skaldic poetry and then edaic poetry. So edaic meaning from the two eddas are two key sources for Norse myth, the prose edda and the poetic edda. And sort of the differences between those two poems are, or those two forms of poetry are the obviously the edaic come from the eddas, and we actually don't know who the author was. So those are, you know, like minstrel poems, um, court poet things, and uh, passed down orally, generation to generation. But then when we get into the the other form of poetry, it's more of um, it doesn't really go into as great of detail. So there's what are known as kinnings in the uh, forms of, of Scaldic poetry, just sort of hinting at details. So like when referring to a ship, instead of using the word ship or boat, they would use the word like an oar or steer, or instead of using the word sword, they would use something, something like, um, a wound hoe or something. Mm. Uh, so those are the two forms of poetry. And, um, like I said, one's called Scaldic poetry and obviously, uh, that would be the job of a skald, would be to recite those poems. So they actually had a special class, uh, just dedicated special class of people just dedicated to preserving these oral traditions. And, uh, and those were of course the skalds, which would have been, uh, the poets at the time they would Hmm. have had special places in, in court and, um, you know, in the great hall. And, uh, it was, uh, you know, cause, um, while the Vikings did often, Write things down in, in their alphabet, the runes. Uh, we have very limited preserved runes because most of them were likely written on wood, which of course deteriorates. So, a lot of what we know about Norse myth is simply was simply passed down orally, generation to generation, but then later written down by historians and um, Christian poets and Christian historians.
1: And do we know if it was was it just for the leaders and the elites or was it also part of a more of a, a campfire or or family tradition?
2: That's a good question. I would say that it would be both in that um, the everyday Norse person, the everyday Viking, uh, was very aware uh, that the gods existed, mm-hmm. the gods that we're told of in these poems. You know, it's interesting to note that, you know, uh, many Christians display their uh, affection for Christianity by wearing cross necklaces nowadays, but during the Viking age, um, we found hundreds. Just numerous amounts of Mjolnir pendants, and Mjolnir is Thor's hammer, so these uh, pendants and necklaces that Viking men and women would wear depicting Thor's hammer as Hmm. Thor was the sort of the god of the everyday man or woman, the the god of agriculture during that time.
1: Okay, so let's turn to the Voluspa. So what is the Voluspa, and when roughly was it written?
2: So the Voluspa is one of many poems that can be found in the Poetic Edda, and as mentioned before, the Poetic Edda is one of our two key sources for Norse myth. Uh, Its author is unknown, uh, just the Poetic Edda, and thus the Voluspa as well, Uh, and it is believed to have been composed, these poems, around the year 1270, somewhere Mm -hmm. in there. As as far as the oral tradition behind it, that could have potentially existed hundreds of years before, but a lot of people are actually content to date it much later, uh, right around like 1000 AD, so sort of really marking the end of the Viking Age.
1: Mm -hmm. And was this in
2: Old Norse? Yes, it would have been in in Old Norse, the the Viking's native language. Right.
1: And do we know anything about the author or... Or the circumstances of its writing, or does it does it appear to be a single author, or does it look like it morphed over uh, many years through an oral tradition?
2: Yeah, I would say the latter. Um, mm. Like I said, the Author is anonymous. We don't know who it is, but there's definitely sort of like variation in the different poems, whether it be the Havamal, the Völuspá, the Grimnismal, the Mall, uh, that are all in the Poetic Edda. So it really is kind of at the influence and at the will of the person, you know, composing it, who composed those poems. And was was it preserved in
1: some way, or how do we, how did we, how did it come down to us? Did it come down as as part of the Edda, or was it that something that was compiled by later historians and scholars, or uh it, was it written down at all, or or did it just survive orally until hundreds of years later, or how did that yeah. happen?
2: Yeah, so it survived orally, but then was later written down by historians, and it the central part of the poetic Edda, the kind of where we get it from, the writing is from a document called the Codex Regis. And that was that basically is the poetic edda, but that's just kind of the raw manuscripts, the um, manuscripts that encompass all of the different poems. And those would have been, um, again, like minstrel poems, uh, law court poet, uh, law court poetry and that sort of thing.
1: And was that written on paper or
2: stone or what yeah, you it would have been been like written on paper, uh, manuscript. You can actually probably, uh, for those listening, uh, just Google Codex Regis, and you can see the old copies of the manuscripts on the paper written around um, 1270. And were they kept in a you know through a, a church,
1: or is it something that that was discovered by archaeologists?
2: That's a good question. That's something that I'm actually curious to know as well, Uh, and I'll be having a special guest on my show, and we'll actually be talking a lot about the Voluspa, so I'd be interested to ask her that, but I would – my instinct would be to say that the church would have a lot to do with it as Mm -hmm. the Middle ages was progressing. The church was becoming more and more more controlling over these – Sort of documents, you know, but it's just a little sort of tidbit. It is interesting to note that um, a lot of the Christians who were put in charge of um, preserving these, uh, you know, paganistic poems, especially the main one who uh, Snorri Sturluson, who wrote the Prose Edda, actually has a very tolerant attitude towards um, Norse myth, which is very rare, of course, during the Middle Ages. Yeah. Did they try to
1: sneak a little Christianity into it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Um, In in the Prose Edda, which is the uh, contemporary to the Poetic Edda, I think in the prologue, Snorri writes something like, uh, the gods Thor, Odin, and Loki are actually descendants of Troy. And actually, they went back to Scandinavia and people just started worshipping them as gods. All
1: right. Okay. Okay. So... Let's get to the poem itself. So we're uh, who? Let's start with the speaker, or if there's a, a narrator, or who is there? Sort of a character who's delivering these lines?
2: Yeah. So the the person, the narrator, delivering the lines. It's the Voluspa is also known as the Cirrus's prophecy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's this sort of like Cirrus uh, witch um, character telling us of these poems or telling us the story of the poem and she's telling us the how the world was created and then also of the end times ragnarok and, and the poem isn't very long um i think if you pick up a copy it's only about you know 20 pages few stanzas but uh the poem starts off with talking about the creation of the world and then progresses to ragnarok which is uh when the world will End and, and the gods will battle the frost giants, and it's the, the twilight of the gods. But then the world will become, you know, reborn again, and there's sort of this mythic cycle element to it as well. Mm.
1: So the translation I saw called it the wise woman. You called it the witch. Is that a is wise woman sort of a, a euphemism here?
2: Yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, and I suppose it it really depends on the translations because the translations do tend to differ. I've just always understood it as the Sirius's prophecy, and if you look up, you know, Sirius, that kind of has sort of like more witch connotations to yeah, it, yeah. Um, and in which not necessarily in like an evil witch sense, more of like somebody who has knowledge of the future. Mm. I would say.
1: right, okay, so wise woman, it sort of fits in there with that connotation of witch.
2: Yeah. Um,
1: okay, so we skipped over a bit, so let's walk through it a little more. Uh, It starts with the creation, ends with a vision of the future. But uh, let's talk about what's actually in the creation. So how does it explain the creation of the universe?
2: Yeah, so the creation of the universe in Norse myth, in the poetic edda, It really doesn't give a a great description of how the world is created. That's something that's described quite in depth in the other source, the Prozetta, but it Mm. hints the creation of the world. So there's a lot of uh, hints, what are known as, as I said before, kinnings. And basically how the creation of the world goes is – you know, there's this long story short. There's this first being, uh, the giant Emir, who emerges from the uh, this melting ice, and then there's this cow uh, called Eldumla, who also emerges from the frozen ice, and uh, she nourishes Emir uh, with her milk, and um, she in turn takes nourishment from licking the salt stones on this great patch of ice in the uh, giant gaping void, Gununga Gap, which was basically all that existed during that time. And there's a realm of fire and a realm of ice and uh, they kind of mix together and that's how these creatures are emerged. But then eventually um, more people are brought out of the ice and actually Eir's two legs um, mate with each other and have children. And while he sleeps, the perspiration under his armpit also bears him more children. And those children eventually uh, end up being odin the highest and mightiest of all the gods in Norse myth and his two brothers. And they kill Ymir and eventually they create the world out of his body. His bones are the rocks and mountains, his brains are the clouds, um, you know, all that sort of thing. And they create this giant world, which is the universe in Norse myth is encompassed and understood in this gigantic ash tree called Yggdrasil. Hmm. And, there's nine different realms in Norse mythology. Uh Midgard being the realm of humans, Asgard being the realm of the gods, Jotunheim being the realm of the giants, and then the dwarves and elves get their own realms and there's the underworld of hell and uh the world of fire and so on. Right. Of-
1: yeah. So I had a hard time picturing what this this tree was was meant to be. Is it is it that the you know the earth, the ground that we walk on is is a part of this tree, or is it is it surrounding us somehow, or how exactly does that work?
2: Yeah, it's kind of uh, hard to wrap your head around, isn't it? It's kind of abstract, but the, the entire mythic landscape of, in Norse myth is this tree, and the nine different realms are all encompassed in the roots and branches of this tree. Hmm. And we're even told that Odin uh, rides his eight-legged horse S- Sleipnir across the branches from realm to realm. Apart from the gods, not too many, not too many like different realms interact with each other. Like everybody sort of stays in their their collective realm, unless of course uh, they die and they either go to Asgard or the underworld of hell.
1: Hmm. So is the tree maybe? Uh, do you think of it as more like I was picturing an actual tree that was enormous, but maybe. Should I be picturing it instead as more like a map, like a family tree? And it's more like a a chart of where things are geographically or?
2: <laughs> no, I think you're right. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? No, I think you're right to picture it as an actual tree. Yeah. Uh, because even in Ragnarok, you know, the great tree is lit on fire by this uh, great fire giant. And it burns down, but then it is again reborn. So it's very much a, a physical tree.
1: Yeah. So I guess this—I uh, mean, this—this this maybe goes without saying, but this is a people who lived among the forests, and this would yeah. be a, a, a very natural symbol for them to use. Just as in Egypt, maybe they look to the sun or something. Here, they're they're uh, impressed by the trees around them and imagining uh, a giant tree.
2: Yeah, I think I think that's dead on. You're
1: absolutely right. So you had mentioned something before where you said that uh, there were. You know hints of all of the things that you described. And I have to say, when I went through the Poetic Edda and the Voluspa, I wasn't getting nearly as much detail as you were able to convey from your other sources. And I'm wondering, though, for the listeners, for the people who were hearing it in real time, my guess is these would have been very familiar and maybe the hints would have been all that they needed.
2: Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, they definitely would have had a, a good understanding of how the world worked and uh, that they were a part of this universe with this this great ash tree, uh because all of those traditions, all of those oral traditions were written down much later, so I think you're right uh hints would have been all that they needed to to understand what what these poems were getting at
1: okay, and then <laughs> i can 't skip over this part because i 'm fascinated by it after the although I suspect a lot of readers maybe do skip over it a little bit lightly after the creation of the universe, we come to the catalog of the dwarves. And it's, I don't know, six or eight stanzas that are basically names of famous historical dwarves.
2: Yeah, that's interesting. And I think you're right. A lot of folks do tend to skip over that. Now, I don't really know, to be honest, what the significance of that is, in apart from just naming these, um, you know, again, notable dwarves. Because dwarves in Norse myth are not really main characters Uh, the Hmm. main characters in the norse myths tend to be humans gods and giants but that's pretty much it uh dwarves do come into it occasionally uh you know they're great craftsmen they um crafted thor's hammer and and odin's spear whose point can't be broken but it's interesting because that's kind of one of the great ironies in norse myth like they dedicate quite a few stanzas to going through the history of these dwarves but yet uh in norse myth they're not really talked about much.
1: So they're not celebrated as the sort of founding fathers or I guess in in Greek myths you might have the the myths the the gods and heroes they don't play that sort of a role.
2: Yeah, that's right because uh the dwarves aren't really significant characters in, in Norse myth. The primary creatures in Norse myth are gods, giants and and humans. Uh the dwarves certainly, you know, are mentioned throughout Norse mythology and throughout the poetic edda in that you know they crafted thor's you know indestructible hammer, uh, odin's spear whose point can never be broken uh, but and they have their own realm as well. Uh, Svartalheim is one of the nine worlds but they there's not really any myths that are centered around dwarves hmm. except for the meat of poetry which <laughs> actually is quite a humorous myth it it centers around two like psychopaths uh two sociopathic dwarves um but but that's pretty much it so it's it's i'm not actually i'm curious myself as to why these dwarves are included in the beginning of the poetic edda and there's a that's one of the things about norse myth and the viking age in general is there's so much that we don't know and Mm, yeah there's a lot in norse myth where everything lines up for the most part uh, thanks to the work of Christian historians. But there's a lot of great ironies and a lot of things where it's just like, okay, that was very random. We don't really know why that little tidbit was included there.
1: Yeah, maybe there was a whole line of kind of, I guess, bestseller, so to speak, uh, oral myths about certain dwarves. And this was naming their names to the great pleasure of the audience. But the the stories that they were premised on is has have been lost to us.
2: Yeah, um, that's absolutely correct. Who knows what else could be out there in tor- in terms of just Norse myth um, that was just lost to us, you know?
1: Yeah, and one thing that it did do, having this catalog, is it inspired uh, writers like Tolkien to use the names. I saw the name Gandalf in here in the catalog of dwarves.
2: Yeah, that's right. Tolkien was very familiar with with uh, Norse myth, and actually, I had one of the world's leading Tolkien scholars, Tom Shippey, on my show, and we talked about that briefly in his interview. But uh, Gandalf was certainly one of the names of the dwarves, as well as there's just a lot of similarities. I mean, if you look at Ragnarok, which is mentioned in the Voluspa, the Twilight of the Gods, the End Times in in Norse myth, uh, that. Actually, Christopher Tolkien, the son of J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, talks about how that was inspired. Um, that inspired the um, daga Dagorath, which is the great final battle in Tolkien's uh, *Legendarium* and uh, *Silmarillion*. Uh, it's mm. mentioned as well. And uh, it, there's definitely a lot of similarities. I know the sun and moon are destroyed. And uh, actually at Ragnarok, the two wolves, which are perpetually chasing the sun and moon, which are driven on chariots at Ragnarok, the, uh, they're engulfed in the uh, wolves devour the the sun and the moon. So there's so many similarities in in Tolkien.
1: Right. And one of the things with the Catalog of Dwarves that I wondered about Whenever I see that sort of compilation or or list, I mean, part of it is you wonder if they're pleasing the audience with some familiar names and and some maybe it's very melodious to hear the sounds of the names in put into the verse, or if it's trying to preserve some history, or maybe just kind of portray this as uh, being historically accurate. You know, the more you fill things with details that That sound real and and sound impressive and sound thorough. Maybe it gives the poem a bit of credibility as a as a recorded history document.
2: Yeah, that could that could very well be. Um, Yeah, and in terms of composing the myths, we don't really know um, how. We don't know much about that process,
1: right? So yeah, so this could have been the work of maybe a a single person who interpolated these uh, these names as part of the oral process uh, but I guess that kind of begs the question of what do you think motivated the poem what what are what is the the author or the speaker of the poem trying to do
2: I think that the speaker of the poem is telling us of a prophecy Okay. Uh, it's, yeah it's the serious prophecy and, and she's kind of prophesying the I mean certainly the creation of the world speaking of what has already been but also the the end of the world so it's kind of outlining the mythic cycle uh in norse mythology
1: right and there's a part where the the speaker the wise woman actually gives some information to odin that only odin would that wouldn't that would be difficult for anyone to know to kind of gain some credibility as to her powers of being able to prophecy correctly
2: yeah that's that's correct
1: but what do you think the poem is up to? Is it? Do you think it's, it's uh, just trying to entertain people or does it have a, a religious agenda or why is it trying to explain? I mean, a creation myth, I think, has kind of an obvious motivation of trying to explain the world to people who are curious. But a prophecy seems like it could be trying to move people in a certain direction or it could just be a good fun story or what do you, what's your take on what's behind this as a prophecy?
2: Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that in poetry in general to the Vikings uh would have been a very entertaining thing to hear these stories surely and mm. absolutely entertaining, but it, it was also their religion. Uh So as, as much as it was entertaining, there was also very serious uh spiritual connections that they, they, you know, thought they had to these gods, which is just, um, absolutely incredible. If, if you think about it, uh, just how, how these myths influenced their, their everyday lives. I can't, I can't even imagine what it would have been like to, to meet a Viking, but I think that's such an excellent question because there's multiple things that, that, that this poem is driving at. And I suppose at the same time, one could say that we, we really don't know the answer to that.
1: Yeah. Is it connected to morals or values? Does it does it seem like, you know, the vision like this could be yours if you work hard, you know, sort of the way heaven might be in some religions? Or is it does it promote any kind of behavior in the listeners?
2: I don't think so because it's interesting to note that out of all the sources, out of all the limited sources that we have for Norse Smith, we don't actually have any historical evidence of how the Norse gods were worshipped we don't know how to honor the gods we don't know how to make a sacrifice to the gods we don't know how to pray to the gods uh, so I guess I'm, another answer is you know I just we don't really know uh, the answer to that question
1: isn't that interesting and it's not that old that's the thing yeah
2: that's right
1: <laughs> it just uh, is that because it just wasn't recorded as well, or it kind of got steamrolled by Christianity.
2: The Vikings, in if you look at the, just the Norse people, the Vikings kind of came onto the scene of world history very abruptly, and the Viking Age was short. It only lasted three hundred years, about uh, seven nine three till around like ten sixty six. To get technical with with dates, mm, but
0: reason okay. why we
2: do, yeah the reason why we don't know anything about the Vikings before that is because ancient Greek and Roman Explorers never really made it that far north and certainly the Roman Empire never made it past uh, uh, you know the Germanic tribes in Germania. They never made it that far north. so we just don't know uh, what was going on before the Vikings started raiding monasteries
1: right and by the time this poem, for example, was recorded, the heyday had already been over for a couple of couple of hundred years. yeah, that's right. Okay. So we're getting just sort of, we're just seeing it uh, shards and fragments of the actual richness of the culture.
2: Yeah, it's it's a shame, but um, it, it certainly is interesting. And there's so many questions that uh, are unanswered. And I hope uh, as archaeology continues to thrive, Viking Age archaeology, I hope that we can find more and more evidence and more and more answers.
1: Yeah, that's exciting. And it's also exciting or, you know, it seems like the suggestiveness of it might help you know it it kind of fuels the imagination to have these gaps,
2: yeah, it really does fuel the imagination, and I think that's probably why uh scholars like tolkien and were so um drawn by these myths that they actually were inspired by them enough to incorporate many of their themes into you know his Tolkien's writings, The Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion and in The Hobbit as well, yeah.
1: And I mean, I'm always struck by that when I, I, we go back to this period. It feels in some ways sort of, it feels like a, a calling back to the past, but it also feels sort of futuristic. And it just, uh, there's something about this period of history that feels, it, it feels strangely familiar in a, a very interesting way that I don't get when I read about ancient Romans or, or anything like that. It's, uh, it's close to us but yet it's it's also a little bit harder to inhabit.
2: Yeah, I think you're right because the societies of Greece and Rome were very very well developed and very I don't know if I would use the word civilized, but you know what I mean, very established. Yeah. Whereas there's very like primal elements to Norse myth and the myths are just timeless because while some may find it hard to relate to cold winter nights and howling wolves, these are just really like basic uh, problems that mankind has has dealt with for millennia.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, what about this poem? Do you think would particularly resonate with someone at the time? What do you, What do you think was was registering when they were sitting down to to listen? Do you think they were in a, a state of awe? Do you think they were uh, laughing and and enjoying the the beauty of the the words or the stories or how do you think they were responding to the poem
2: yeah that's a really good question i think as far as the bits of of ragnarok are concerned the the mention of the end times i think there would have just been this this great feeling of of awe but also uncertainty mm. uh, because when you hear of this this massive battle between the gods and the frost giants and the whole universe is being you know burnt burnt down the yggdrasil is set on fire and the sun and moon are being devoured by wolves and uh it's just it's absolutely nutty um so i, th- I think i can't even imagine the you know cuz these people right they actually believed that this stuff existed and believed that this was going to happen to them it was going to happen to the universe i can't imagine what might've been going through their minds as they listened to these poems around a great bonfire, you know, do you think they believed like they, they believed in,
1: in the literal truth of it or, or was it more like some people might've believed a little bit and others just sort of, uh, were kind of amused by it.
2: No, I think they definitely would have believed it. Uh, like I said, just with the Mjolnir pendants that we've found, um, we've also, we've also found little statues, of various Norse gods, uh, Odin, and as well as uh, Frey, the great fertility god. So we found a lot of and picture stones as well uh, depicting various scenes in the sagas and Norse myths. So they definitely uh, were inspired by it, but in a very literal way. Yeah,
1: it's oh, so fascinating. Do you think it was that it was? Oh, I guess we're. I guess what I'm really asking is why? How religions. What what gets religion started and the impulse behind uh, wanting to have these answers and looking for, you know, wise people who can deliver these answers. We're so familiar with the great religions that are still in existence that to think about another set of people who are looking to a completely different set of myths to answer that questing that people have, the spiritual questing that people have, it kind of gives me chills.
2: Yeah, it's it's crazy to think about. And like you said, the great religions that are still in existence and have existed for thousands of years. There's also so many um religions that have just faded away and Norse paganism and Norse mythology is is no exception. So it's just crazy to think that this influenced so many people's lives, but yet uh it's been all but forgotten for quite a while until until recent years. Yeah.
1: I still I still find it inspiring I'm, I guess you must as well but it's still uh it still does make me it gives me a lot to think about and I, I enjoy putting my mind in that space
2: yeah I agree uh, just reading the these myths it's it's absolutely inspiring and like we talked about before there's just really this element of I think you said it really well just like it was a very primal time to which all humans can relate but also sort of futuristic mm. like ragnarok never actually happened and you know these people always believed that ragnarok was going to happen it was going to happen but it was going to happen and then christianity swept in and uh you know ragnarok never happened and i wonder if if people there was a few leftover pagans who who still believe that it could have happened despite overwhelming christianity just being overwhelmingly popular in europe at the time
1: right Okay, so if someone is is looking for the bud today, is there a particular uh, dish? Is it worth reading first of all, or is it is it worth reading as a poem, or is it more worth reading as a uh, you know sort of an annotated version and and more of a historical document? And how would you recommend that someone who's interested? approach it is there a particular edition or translation that you would recommend for them
2: yeah there's uh, actually two really great translations and i think it can definitely be enjoyed as a poem Fortunately, uh, both of the editions that I'm about to recommend are written in contemporary English. Uh, Oxford professor Caroline Larrington's uh, translation of the Poetic Edda is really good, and you can find it anywhere, Amazon, whatever. But then Dr. Jackson Crawford of uh, the University of Colorado Boulder has a really great translation uh, of the Poetic Edda, and that's written in contemporary English. But even – more readable, I would say, than Larrington's translation, because while hers is great, it really encompasses a lot of footnotes. So it depends what kind of person you are, but Caroline Larrington's translation or Dr. Jackson Crawford's translation.
1: Mm. And that reminds me, I I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I was hoping you could read a few of the verses so we can get a a kind of a taste of it. I I meant to have you do that at the beginning, but maybe that's a good way for us to conclude. Uh, Is there a passage from either of those translations that... Uh, You could read for us?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Let me just um, pull it up here. So uh, I'll just read a few stanzas then. Um, Let me see. I'll start here. And uh, I guess I'll go here. And I'll start with uh, stanza 17 of the Voluspa. And this is talking about how the three gods, Odin and his two brothers, Vili and Ve, uh, created the first humans. uh, But then also created... The universe out of the great ash tree Yggdrasil so Mm. here we go three gods powerful and passionate left Asgard for Midgard they found Ask and Embla weak fateless in that land they had no breath no soul no hair no voice they looked inhuman Odin gave them breath Honir gave them souls Loth gave them their hair and human faces. I know an ash tree named Yggdrasil, a high speckled tree with white clay. Dewdrops fall from it upon the valleys. It stands forever green above Earth's well. Three wise women live there by that well under that tree. Earth is named one. Another is Verthalndi. The third is named Skuld. They carve men's fate and they determine destiny's laws. They choose the lifespan of every human child and how each life will end. So that's a little uh, little bit from the Voluspa there. And, of course, the three women mentioned at the end there are what are known as the Norns. And they're uh, people who practice this magic that can alter one's destiny. And they control the, the fate of all people. And they live uh, in Earth's well under the ash tree Yggdrasil.
1: Mm, fascinating stuff. Okay. So the podcast is called The History of Vikings, and the guest or the host of that podcast, my guest here today, is Noah Tetzner. Noah, thank you very much for joining me today on The History of Literature.
2: Thank you so much, Jack. It's been a great pleasure to be here. That's
1: going to do it for this episode of The History of Literature. My thanks to Noah Tetzner host of the History of Vikings podcast, for joining me today. I hope everyone checks out that podcast if you're interested in Viking culture. And I hope you come back to listen to more of our little shows, too. We have some good ones coming up and some good ones in the archives. There's a Beowulf episode in the archives, if the Middle Ages is your thing, and all kinds of other goodies, too. If you'd like to support the show, you can find us at patreon.com literature or... Historyofliterature.com slash shop. Or you can sign up for our Twitter feed at The Jack Wilson. That's Jack spelled with an E. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.